invite you to take your Bibles. Let's open it to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Originally, when I started the, the series of the church foundations, I didn't plan to do this sermon on deaconship because uh, obviously our church here in um, Porch, uh, this is not the, the most pressing issue or the most pressing need we have. Um, no doubt we need the first half of 1 Timothy qualified deacon, elders, um, but this is called Church Foundations, and I think it is to, it's good for us to lay that foundation and to see what God's Word says about deacons. And here's the other thing as well that we might not realize is, um, even though maybe some of us won't aspire to be a deacon or you think you don't qualify to be a deacon, this is still the, the qualifications of a mature Christian. So even if you don't, you know, going to fulfill the, the official office of a deacon or even an elder, these are qualities that must be true of all Christians. This is a standard. This is what Christian maturity looks like. So even as we study this text this afternoon, I want to invite you in. I want to invite you to use this text as a mirror for your own heart. Use it as a mirror for your own life and see if you qualify. And if not, repent and strive and keep on striving by God's grace to, to become more Christ-like in this. So let's read the text together and hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3 verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's a reading of God, so let's pray together. Father, we come to you this afternoon and we confess that we are utterly, utterly dependent on you. Lord, we can sow, we can water, but only you, Lord, can give the growth. Only you can cause your word to take deep root in our hearts, Lord. And Father, we pray for that. We pray that you will even use this, this text, this sermon, this passage on deacons, Lord, to make us more Christ-like, to prepare us more to be better husbands, better wives, better Christians in general, Lord. That we would reflect the pure, pure righteousness of Jesus. That we would, as we live our lives, that we would have an aroma of Christ in our love and our maturity, Lord. Please, Father, be merciful to us and make us a mature church for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the purpose of 1 Timothy is given just a few verses down um, in verse 14 and 15. Just read that as well. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul says, um, I want you, Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. He says, I want you, Timothy, to know how to behave in the household, the family of God. This is God's family rules. Just like we would say, no jumping on the bed, no cell phones during eating. Those are our family rules, and you, we expect people to abide by that. So this is God's family rule. This is his household, and we should build our church, our family, the family of God, according to his family rules, right? But we also learn something about the church's priority. Of all the characteristics that Paul can emphasize about what is the church supposed to be all about, what does he choose to highlight in verse 15? Look at it again. He says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. The, the church is a pillar. It upholds the truth. It, it makes it visible and clear without being ashamed of its words. And as we make that clear, the words of God, God is pleased to save sinners and sanctify saints. So that's why we have to uphold this truth, this word up high. 
It's also the buttress of the truth. King James says the ground of the truth. Other translations, the, the bulwark or the foundation of the truth. So the idea is the same. The church is created by God to be the guardian, to protect, to herald the truth. And the truth is summarized in verse 60, just the verse below. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Who is he talking about there? Christ, right? Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in all, taken up in glory. The, the truth we are protecting is not just statements of facts, although it includes that. The truth we are upholding is a person. We want our lives, our church, to be a pillar and buttress of Christ. For Christ to stand up high, that people might see Him, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the only way. Not just a way, a truth, a life, but the truth, the life, the way to God. Now think with me, if this is what the church is all about, this should be the heartbeat of our church, then what would be the thing that the devil would try to destroy? If the church is the pillar and the buttress of the, of the truth, then of course if he can destroy the church, the foundations crumble, right? The pillar falls down. If the church is the pillar and if he destroys that, the truth will collapse. Not be destroyed. Truth can never be destroyed. God cannot be overcome. God will always win in the end. But in a temporary way, he would have achieved the great victory, right? And how does he do that? How would he attack the pillar and the buttress of the truth? Well, first and the main way is through false gospels, false teachers. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul says, I've sent you, Timothy, I want you to remain there to silence people that are distracted by interesting trivia or interesting hidden meanings in the Bible, but is not focused on what? On the truth, on Christ. They focus, they, they diverted, they, they distracted. Paul actually predicted that this would happen. Um, remember, this was now, Timothy is in Ephesus, and Paul, when he was with the elders of Ephesus, wrote the, said this to the elders in Acts 20, verse 29 to 30. Acts 20, verse 29. Paul said this to the elders of the in Ephesians. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So Paul's speaking to the elders and he says, from among you, from the elders, from your, your pastors, will come men that will speak twisted things. Isn't that a scary thing? Right, it's one thing when the, the heresy is at the bottom, but it's another thing when the heresy is at the top, when the elders and the shepherds and the pastors are teaching false gospels, are speaking twisted things, are focusing on the Mosaic law, and that we have to start being the, or start focusing on the genealogies and not focusing on Christ. And that's really the easiest test you can take to know if, 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 if teaching is false or right. Is this sermon about Christ? Is the main emphasis of this church, of, this, of, this, of these people, the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he up front? Or is this really more about us? Is this really more about me, myself, and I? Right? So where's the focus? Where's the emphasis? That's the easiest way to detect it. So Paul's solution is to leave Timothy there to silence these people. So that's why 1 Timothy 3 is the solution. He says, install biblical qualified elders. Get elders there that, will, that are qualified biblically and that will proclaim and shepherd the flock of Christ. So that's the first way the devil can use or try to destroy the church is through false teachers, false pastors. Okay? But there's another danger, and this danger might be even more dangerous because of its subtlety. Because of it might, it's a very, very good thing that becomes a most important thing. And it's this. When the church is distracted by various serving and being distracted from the preaching of the word. And in comes deacons, right? That's why biblical qualified deacons on this. I want you to turn with me to Acts for a moment. Just turn with me to Acts chapter 6. This is probably the place where the early deacons were needed and installed, although we don't find the word deacon in this 
text, um, there's another word we're going to look at that is very closely related to that. But let's read verse 1, Acts 6 verse 1. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. And the complaint arose to the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That's an incredibly serious problem in the early church. Our widows gets food first. Your widows will have to wait. Our people has to eat first. Then your people can eat. Right? So this, this might be the first early form of racism in the church or discrimination in the church, right? And this is so wrong because who, who, are, who is our people as Christians? It's not white people. It's not black people. It is Christ's people. That's our people. And Christ's people happens to consist of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, right? Those are our people. Mainly, that's the household of God, the family of God. Now, this is a serious issue. Don't you agree? Don't you agree that this has the potential to rip the church apart, to split the church? Well, look at verse 2. Look at what the apostles do in verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Wait, what? You can't be serious. It is not right to stop preaching and to feed widows? That just sounds wrong, right? The apostles say, if we have to choose between the two, between preaching and serving food, it would be wrong to stop preaching. We would be sinning. In other words, preaching God's word takes priority over even practical needs of the church. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say the practical needs of the church are unimportant or that the, to feed widows are unimportant. That's not what we're saying. Which one takes priority? Now think about this. Would you say that? Would you have said this? Would your priority be, listen, if I have to choose between food and preaching the word, I'll choose the preaching of the word. I'll take the word. Right? Is that how we feel about the Bible? Is that how we feel about the preaching of God's word? In, in other words, beloved, another threat to the church, being the pillar and the buttress of the church, is not just false teaching, but very good practical needs of the church that clouds, that distracts the elders and the pastors from being devoted to preaching the word. And won't we say that that's a good thing? Imagine elders and pastors that are committed to this, and they're fully committed, Right? They're involved with distributing the food parcels. They're always um, involved in the people's lives. They always visit everybody every day of the, of the congregation. People would look at those pastors and those elders and say, Wow, what an amazing eldership. What an amazing group of pastors. They're so active in the society, in the community. God would say, No. <laughs> That's not right if you do that to the neglect of preaching the word. Now let me tell you why. Why is, it, why is this priority there? Well, firstly, it's there because it's wrong to make man more important than God. It is always wrong, no matter what good intentions you have, to make man more important than God. To, keep, to give up the faithful preaching of God's word and to serve tables is to prioritize man above God. And that's always wrong. It's idolatry. It's worshipping other gods above God. Man is important, but not more important. You see again the emphasis? We're not saying man is unimportant, but not more important. But it's also wrong for the second reason. And it's wrong because it's wrong to make the body more important than the soul. It's wrong to make the body more important than the soul. Man shall not live by bread alone, of course, so we need bread but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you have to choose between the two, you choose the word. Jesus said this in Mark 8 verse 36. He says, well, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? You have all of your physical needs met. And you forfeit only one thing, your soul. 
It, it, you can't even compare the two. He said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If only your body is at risk, don't fear. That's what Jesus says. If only your physical health is at risk, don't, don't be scared. Your soul is safe. You'll be with me forever. This body is weak, frail, corrupted. It will perish. But your soul will never perish. It will live forever and ever, either in heaven or in hell. Now, again, we're not saying the body is unimportant, right? I mean, it's so important to God that Christ will forever have a physical body and God will even raise our bodies from the earth, from the, from the dead. So it's not, again, we're not saying it's unimportant, but what's the priority in this life? It is our souls. Do you see the point? If you have to choose between food and the Bible, you choose the Bible. Would you skip a breakfast if you haven't read your Bible yet? Would you say, I, I haven't read my, my Bible yet. I have to skip lunch. I have to skip supper. I just have to get into this book. Right? 1 Peter 2 talks about it. We should be like newborn infants longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word. If you know anything of an, a baby, that it's never satisfied until it gets its milk. When Jesus obeyed the Father, he said this in John 4 verse 34. He says, my food, listen to that, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. It's like eating to me. When I've done it, I'm, my hunger is full. I don't have to eat. Jesus could skip a meal when he did the will of the Father. It satisfied him. And that's how we should feel too. We should be satisfied with the word. What did Jesus say to Peter three times? Feed my sheep. What does he mean? Sheep needs the word, right? Prioritize the word. My sheep comes every Sunday and they need the nutrition of, of my word. Feed them. That's how we should feel too. That's how holy we should feel about the preaching of God's word. So how did the apostles solve this dilemma? Well, here we see the first installment that I believe of the first deacons in the church Again, even though the words um, deacon isn't used there, that, that's, that verb that says to serve tables is the same Greek word that means diakono, diakono, neo, which means where we get our English word deacon from, means to serve, to serve tables. So instead of doing the deacon's job themselves, they install deacons to do it. Look at verse 3 to 4. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to the duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, it is important to feed widows. So he asks the church to pick out seven men that are qualifying. He says, we will be radically committed to prayer and to the ministry. You know what's ironic about that word? It's the same Greek word for deacon. <laughs> so you deacon tables, we deacon the Bible. Right? You cook the meals in the kitchen, we cook the meals in the study, on our knees, okay? Beloved, can I share something with you? Maybe some of you do not know this, and I usually share this as a joke, but I think it makes the point, okay? And I usually say this, what does a pastor and a black bin have in common? Right? What does a pastor and a black bin have in common? And it is, they, they both get out once a week, right? They, they both... Get some oxygen once a week. Now, some people think that's because pastors only work once a week. Only time I see my pastor is on a Sunday, so the rest of the week, he must come, he must visit, he must help me, he must, he must always be available. But the reason for good pastors, right? So, of course, you get those lazy pastors that downloads their sermon Saturday night, you know, and quickly reads it through and then they, they preach it. You, but those are charlatans. Those are, are, are fakes. Those are false shepherds. Right? But to preach the word week in and week out, to make sure that we rightly, accurately handle this book, takes time. It takes time on our knees. It takes time as we pound and pound and pound on this book day in and day out, asking God to help us understand it and to preach it well. 
That takes time. And if pastors and elders are distracted by serving tables, before we know it, the pillar and the buttress of the church will, will crumble. The, the foundations will fall because the sheep will no longer get food. To deacon the word, you need your full attention. So do you see the threat? It's, it's, a good thre- it's a threat that we would have never expected. It's a threat of practical needs that might tempt the pastor or the elder to constantly take him outside of his office, outside of his quiet room, outside of hours and hours and hours on his knees and over the word to stop serving the word. You, we would be feeding bodies and starving souls. That would be the danger. Now, of course, to clarify, this doesn't mean elders and pastors and shepherds must not be involved in their sheep's lives. And of course we should be. Of course we should. If you have a sin issue, if there's burdens you can't carry, we have to counsel. We have to be involved. Um, in, in fact, here's, an, here's a great text that shows that when, when you are sick and you are struggling with sickness, you ought to call the elders. James chapter 5 verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So elders have to get out. They have to be involved in their sheep. They have to counsel. They have to correct. They have to rebuke. They have to pray over the sick. So elders have to be involved, right? One pastor I know said it like this for, for other people that wants to be pastors. He said, if you want to be a shepherd, you have to smell like sheep. All right. And what he means by that is, you have to actually be rubbing, rubbing with sheep. You know, you can't just be that tower theologian that just loves studying, preaching, studying, preaching, but you never talk to ordinary people, you know, that doesn't know Greek, <laughs> doesn't know. No, pastors should be involved, but what is the priority? Again, that's just the main point. The priority is devoted to prayer, devoted to the ministry, the deaconing of the word. And you know what's amazing? When the church chose the seven men, what was the result? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. What was the result? It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Do you see what happened? Uh, They were guarding the preaching of the word by serving. That's why the title of the sermon is to guard the word by serving. We're saying, pastor, you get back into your office. We are going to take care of this needs. We will take care of the food parcels. We don't you worry. Why aren't you on your knees, pastor? Go back. (laughs) Okay. And what will happen when that happens is the word of God will spread because now the word of God is taught rightly. It's preached rightly. And what does God use to save people? The preaching of God's word. So in a sense, both deacons and elders have the same goal. They have the same main job description, which is protect the word of God. But we do it in different ways. Pastors and elders protect the word of God by delegating. By saying, listen, we can't do this. We, we will neglect the, the deaconing of the word. We will pray and preach. You do it. And deacons protected by saying, Amen, we'll do it. So this is why the whole church must love what? The word of God, the truth. But a church that doesn't value this, a church that doesn't build their, their church upon the truth, upon Christ, upon the gospel, upon the word of God, this doesn't make sense to them. So let's make, your way, let's make our way back to 1 Timothy. And we're going to look at the qualification, but we will, we will run through them quite quickly. So let's look at them together. And this was the solution. In 1 Timothy 3, now install deacons to protect the church. So deacons are not just nice to have. They're not just the, the plus ones to the party. right? They're not just optional add-ons. They are essential for the church to be the pillar and the buttress. But we have to be careful here because... We don't just choose anyone for the job. We don't just say anyone that has a, a, a bit of a similarity, that is, that is very servant-hearted, you're in. Just as dangerous as it is to have no deacons and letting the elders burn out, it's equally dangerous to have unqualified deacons. You can write this down. It is better to have no elders and no deacons than to have unqualified elders and unqualified deacons. Better to have none and rather suffer together, rather say, Lord, we're praying for for more laborers and we are discipling each other. We want to become qualified, but it's better to to have no elders and deacons than to rush it 
just to have a nice website where we can have our deacons and our elders' photos there. If we are impatient to push people, the church will suffer for that. And that's why 1 Timothy 3 is in your Bibles. There's actually a standard, God's standard written down that we should be fulfilling. And in this, we shouldn't be pragmatic, but obedient. We can see at least four crucial qualifications. And again, if, even though you might not desire this office or want to become this person, test yourself. This is what every true Christian must be. First is the qualification of character. The qualification of character in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So the, the first thing we look for in a deacon is not his ad- administrative skills, how likable he is, how rich he is, how influential he is. That, those, all those things are irrelevant. We first ask, is this a mature Christian? Many make the mistake to elect influential people, people that they like, people that, that they don't want to offend. No, we should. God is not impressed by the external things, but by our character, by our obedience. Rather, our obedience than sacrifice. So, beloved, we should not fear man in this. Fear God, and we should choose wisely. First, dignified. Dignified, the first qualification, refers to your character being of such a stature that it draws the respect of other people. You have a, you have a maturity in the way you speak, in the way you live, in the way you do your marriage, in the way you handle yourself in public and in private, that it draws the respect of other people. When that person comes into your presence, there's a respect. So as we think about possible candidates, we should say, does this person draw forth my respect? Or is this person always a clown? Is this person always making jokes? Like, is it impossible to take this man seriously? Now again, that doesn't mean you should have a sour sense of humor. Okay, that's not, that's not the point. But someone that cannot be serious is not respectable. So again, for many of us, that should be something we should be striving for. To become not solemn and joyless, but serious about the things of the Lord. Dignified. Okay? Also, it says not double tongue. Think of a snake that has a split tongue. So in other words, the idea here is he says one thing with one person, and then when he's with another person, he says the other thing. He says one thing behind someone's back, and then he says another thing in front of that person. This person is not tr- trustworthy. He cannot keep his commitments. He cannot keep his word. And often people like this are fearful of man, right? So when someone asks him a question, he, they would say anything to please them, but then afterwards, like, you can't believe that person is like that or whatever, and then they change their words. So we ask this, does this person have a track record of keeping his commitments? When this person tells me, I am going to do it, you know it's happened. It, it's, it's as if it's already done. Or do you have to... I'm, I will do it like, yo, I'm going to have to remind that person on Wednesday and on Thursday and on Friday. <laughs> right? Is this person able to speak the truth in love, even when it's not what people want to hear? Or is this person able to say the same thing in public and in private? Or does this person easily say yes, and then he breaks that commitment? Listen to this verse, Psalm 15 verse 4. This is a, a challenging verse that we should be striving for. Psalm 15 verse 4. It says, The righteous swears to his own hurt and does not change. So it says, when this person has said something, even when it would hurt him to fulfill that commitment, he does it. You know how often that has happened to you, right? You you say yes, and then afterwards you're like, I shouldn't have said yes. But the, the righteous person does it anyway then. I've said yes. Jesus says your yes should be your yes. That's why you should be careful of overcommitment. Because then you have to keep all of those commitments. Or you have to plead for mercy. Ask the person to release you from your commitment, right? But the righteous swears to his own hurt. I've said yes, I'm going to do it, even if it hurts me. That's what it means not to be double-tongued, right? It's being trustworthy. Also, they are not to be addicted to much wine. Now, of course, the obvious application of this is not to be a drunkard. But I think we can take this principle and and make it broader to any addiction. This person must not be dominated by anything. This person must be truly a free Christian. So things like being addicted to video games, being addicted to food, being addicted to smoking. Whatever the addiction might be, a, a mature Christian must be free from dominating 
habits. And notice what I said. I didn't say sins. I said habits. Because sometimes you can be addicted to very good things. So we're not talking about always sinful things. But this person is not dominated by anything. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.12. It says, at the end, he says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So they're not gluttons. They're not drunkards. They're not addicts. They have their bodily passions under control. Again, beloved, don't we all struggle with this? The desires of the flesh, the desires and appetites of our bodies. Again, but this is what we should be striving for. This should be the standard of maturity. When you desire something and you know you can't say no anymore, ask God for grace to change. Kill those passions. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Can we say about a person, look at that person as an example of how to use alcohol. Look at that person as an example of how to have your bodily passions under control. But deacons also mustn't be greedy for dishonest gain. They mustn't be greedy. Is this person content with his money, with his finances? Or is this person falling every time for a get-rich-quick scheme? The next time you know he's in another scheme that's going to make him supposedly rich, right? Or is this person a generous giver? Is he lavish with his, his money, his gifts? Is he able to give generously or is he a selfish hoarder? Is this person honest on his tax returns? Does this person pay tax? Does this person pay his bills on time? By the way, greed is not something that only lives in the heart of the rich. That's a, I think it's a myth. We think greed can live in the heart of the poor. Because it's a universal problem. Wanting more is not just a problem of rich people. Uh, and here's the standard. Here's the standard of contentment. If you, if you, have, if you have been wondering what, what does true godly contentment look Look at chapter 6 verse 8 in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 verse 8. It says, But if we have, what? Food and clothing. With these we will be content. Do you have food? Do you have clothing? You have enough. Do you see? Anything above that is bonus. Anything above that is God's richest blessings, which he has given you freely to enjoy. So don't be, now you have to sell everything above that. No, that's not what we're saying. God has given you everything to enjoy, but are you content with food and clothing? If you have those things, God is good, right? And he's good even if you don't have those things because you'll go to heaven. But the Christian has contentment. That's, that's a, again, this is a mature Christian. It doesn't mean we struggle sometimes with these things. We, but again, this is what true contentment looks like. And the reason that is important is because deacons often will have to handle the money of the church. Now imagine if you're, if you're greedy for dishonest gain and you're dealing with the money. You're going to take your hand off the money and suddenly you see the money sticks to your hand. Like, like, like Judas Iscariot, right? He would often help himself from the money bag. That's why we can't install a deacon that's greedy. So for ordinary sheep, if you're an ordinary sheep, let me ask you, are you growing in your character? Are you growing in these things? Are you becoming more like Christ? This takes time. It's progressive sanctification. You might not be here yet, but this is something you need to be striving for by God's grace. Sanctification. Your bodily appetites under control. Saying the same thing in public and in private. Even if it hurts you, 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 you fulfill your commitments and you are content with your life. That's the first qualification. Qualification of um, character. Here's the second qualification. The qualification of doctrine. Verse 9 qualification of doctrine it says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience mystery in the new testament always refers to something that was hidden in the old testament but is now revealed in the new in other words the mystery of the faith refers to all of those doctrines that refers to the gospel of jesus christ when jesus came that was the mystery reveal now that we are one body in him that's a mystery reveal and when it says the faith you might be tempted to think of faith as something that you trust. So faith often means trusting in the Lord. But when it says the faith, it refers to the body of doctrines, the body of truths that we have to believe as Christians. And here's the temptation for us when we think about deacons. We think often of deacons only as doers, but not thinkers. But this says no. 
Even deacons have to be thinkers. They have to be able to understand the basic doctrines of the faith, of the gospel. Or as one pastor said, the table waiters need to know the menu. They need to know the menu because often when they serve food, they will also be counseling. They will also be helping with conflicts. Imagine these Hellenists and these Hebrew-speaking Jews going at each other and here comes deacons and they have to try to divide and have to bring peace. You'll have to know the gospel very, very well to be able to do that, right? So you have to know the gospel. And one practical way we could do that is to ask deacons to fill out a test, to write out a small test of basic theological truths to make sure that they do understand the mystery of the faith. Now, not, not a seminary level or an end exam thing like that, but do they understand the basics of the faith? Do they understand the gospel? But not just to know these things, but what does the rest of it say? Look at the rest of verse 9. With a clear conscience. What does that refer to? When you have a clear conscience, you don't feel guilty about the way you lived last week. When you have a clear conscience, you don't feel guilty about the way you lived last month. Last year. Not perfectly. None of us have lived perfectly. But clear conscience means I have consistently obeyed the Lord in my life. I don't just know this gospel. I'm living it. It's part of my life. It has cleared my conscience. And dear church, this is what we should know. We should all be growing in our theological knowledge. We should all be having an appetite for the Bible, theological books, to grow in, our, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably the most practical way to do that is to just read your Bible. <laughs> by just reading it over and over again. By, by, by faithfully coming every Sunday, week in and week out, you, you, you're receiving theological truth, theological training. We should commit to that in public and in private. So that's the qualification of doctrine. Here's a third qualification. Qualification of time. Qualification of time. Look at verse 10. It says, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The, 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 there's two key words you have to know. The f- first word is first and then. So first let this happen, then let them serve as deacons. They must fulfill a probation period of serving. So deacons are to be given um, tasks or responsibilities so that it can be proven. What does the end of verse 10 say? If they prove themselves blameless. If in that testing period, they should be proven blameless. And after that period of time, then install them as deacons. So in other words, there's a very common practice, practice in many churches that often just elects deacons or nominates deacons. And then it's, they voted in at the next meeting. But they haven't fulfilled the third qualification. There was no time of testing them. There was no time of, okay, we're going to give you some basic tasks, basic responsibilities, and see how you do with them. Right? So again, this also shows something that we shouldn't be rushing into this. We should be rather slow and ensure that those who are deacons are truly qualified for that. So here we need to bow to Scripture and trust Him. Here's the last qualification. The last qualification is... And this one might surprise you. Qualification of family. Family. His family life has to be in order. Look at verse 11 to 12. It says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households. Well, now, here we, are. Here we have a tricky verse. Verse 11 is a, is a tricky verse where Christians disagree on. And in some see in verse 11, the office of a deaconess. Okay? I myself has, have been convinced of that view a few years ago, but I've changed my view. So I'm hoping I could change your view as well. And, but let me first steel man this argument. Okay? Why, why can we say this is deaconesses? Well, firstly, the Greek doesn't say their wives. That's interpret- so the ESV interprets it for us here. The Greek just says women. Women likewise. So it's, it's ambiguous. It can either mean the women of the deacons or the office of deacon, nesses. The women, the women deacons must be like this. Okay, that's the first clue. The second one is the word likewise. Every time when Paul says likewise, it looks like he's introducing a new office. Look at verse 8 when he says um, deacons likewise. Now he's introducing a second office, elders and deacons. And now in verse 
11, their wives likewise. It seems like he's introducing the, the office of a deaconess. And then you add to, to that the fact that in Romans 16 verse 1, Phoebe has been called a deaconess of the church. Romans 16 verse 1, she's a deaconess of the church. So, and because deacons are servants, not leaders, many churches feel it's okay for women to be deaconesses. Right? They're not for functioning as a leader of the church. They're functioning as servants. So it's okay to have both men and women as deaconesses. You see, that's quite a strong, strong argument. Won't you agree? But I still think their wives is correct. So let me try to convince you of that for the following reasons. It would be strange to start a new office in verse 11 and then return to deacons in verse 12. Do you see that? He says there were women... In verse 11, and then 12, he goes back to the, the male deacons. He says deacons must be the husbands of one wife. And it just, so it, ma it's be it makes more sense that Paul is thinking of one office, even though their wives have a role to play. Um, so that's the first clue. The second clue is as well that in the first deacons in Acts chapter 6, they chose seven men. Another clue, right? What better person would have been able to handle with the widows than women that would have made a perfect fit for a woman to come in and be the deaconess at that moment to help with the widows the distribution of the widows and yet they were seven men now here's the big question why would why would there be qualifications for deacons wives but there aren't qualifications for elders wives that doesn't make sense seems like there's a higher standard for deacons than there are for elders but I think it's simply explained by this. An elder's wife cannot help him in his role of preaching. Deborah cannot help me with preaching the word. Okay? But a deacon's wife can help him and often must help him in the mercy ministry of the church, in handling conflicts, in being together with suffering and people who, that are the, the practical needs of the church. And so if the deacon is qualified, but the, his wife is a slanderer, is not faithful in all things, that's also very dangerous, right? And here's the last thing I would say, is even though deacons are table servants, they often fulfill a leadership role of managing, of delegating, of organizing, of, of people in the church. Now, I just want to say, just to, just to say this very clearly, um, there's very, very, very solid churches that disagrees with what I've just said. So... This is like one of those things where the needle has to go either this way or this way. And I think the needle just pushes a little bit more to the male deacons than to this being deaconesses. So we can talk about that afterwards if you still disagree. But, but this is why, here's one of the main things that I just want to highlight in verse 11. It says, their wives must be dignified, also respectable, not slanderers. Often a sin um, women often struggle with is gossiping. Right? As a deacon's wife, you, you are going to find out some juicy information about people in a church. As deacons and deaconesses, or, de or deacon's wives, sorry, I almost contradicted <laughs> myself there. As those, as, as those couples go into homes and often deals with conflict between people, they're going to hear some, they're going to see the messiness of the church, the brokenness of the church, and that's going to be the, the most entertaining thing to share with other people. That's why they cannot be slandered, but they must be faithful in all things. But this all comes back to the men in verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, some think that, some think that means that if a man has been divorced and remarried, it disqualifies him. I don't think that's what it means. I think someone can be divorced and remarried, but if this person has a reputation of a godly Christian and loving his wife and his family, I think he can still be a deacon. Literally, the Greek means a one-woman man. That's what it means. Husband of one wife, a one-woman man. He has eyes for one woman, and that's his wife. He doesn't look at women on a screen. He doesn't look at other women at his workplace. Right? He's a one-woman man. So I think when we interview deacons, we should also interview their wives. Are you happy with your marriage? If she says no, disqualified. You first have to manage your own family well. You first have to love your wife and find out why she's unhappy, fix that,
before you can come in. You see, how, well, another question is, how do you, you and your wife handle conflict? Do you give her the silent treatment? Do you scream? Do you ignore her for a few days? Well, if you can't even handle the conflict in your own family, how are you going to handle the conflict in God's family? It's going to be dangerous if, if you send that person into a conflict situation in the church. Right? So that, that's why it's important. One woman, man. We can ask questions like this. Is this person always flirting with other women? Is he always with the women? Right? That, that's a good question to ask. Or is this person, does this person have only eyes for his wife? But it also includes our parenting. Look at verse 12 at the end. It says, not just a husband of one wife, but managing their children and their own households well. His children must be well managed. That means submissive. Now, just want to say, just to relieve all the parents here, if you had to judge my qualification by how my boys behave on a Sunday, I would be disqualified every week. Okay, so again, this doesn't mean that your child never disobeys, never cries, never, never is unruly, but rather, is there order? Is there peace in your home? Or is there constant shouting, constant disobedience, constant, um, yeah, just not peace, striving in your home? So the, quali- the qualification of family, is this man a model of a good marriage and good parenting? So can I talk to the men here for for a moment, the mania, are you striving to become this kind of a man? You know, in singleness, we always ask, is this the right one? Have you asked, am I the right one? Right? That's just such a better question. Am I godly mature? Now, it doesn't mean that if the other, you just marry anybody, please don't do that. The other person also, there's some standards there. But, but are you striving to become a one woman man? Are you dealing with your porn? Are you dealing with that? That's part of being a one-woman man. If you're not a one-woman man in marriage, you have only eyes for Christ. You only focus on Him. He is the bridegroom. Right? If not, repent. Repent if you're not striving for this. If, if you only care about your public image, but not what you do in your family life. Now, I want to speak to the wives, the women here. Are you such a wife... That your husband would be disqualified if he is qualified for a deaconship, but just because of you, he can't serve. So again, women here, wives, this is something you should be striving for. This is something you should want. You should protect your tongues from all gossip and be faithful in all things. If not, repent. Hate the delicacies of gossiping. Hate the delicacies of hearing about other people's sins, of hearing about how other people are falling and struggling. And the, the best way to do that is to stop, not just to stop talking about it, but to stop listening to it. Don't even listen to it, right? When someone begins something like that, you say, please stop. I don't want to listen to this. Have you talked to that person first? Or do you want counsel? Let us honor the Lord in our marriages and in our family lives. Because that is what impresses Him. That's what impresses God. It's the way we manage if we are one woman husbands and wives that are faithful in all things. Let's close with verse 13. It's the last, quite last thing we're going to look at. The reward for deacons. The reward for deacons. Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Simply put, there's honor in being a deacon, a table servant, a slave of Christ. And that is what we all are. We all have to be table servants and deacons of hearts, right? But as you serve faithfully in the office of a deacon, you, you gain confidence in the faith. You, you, start to see, you start to see those connecting dots between the, the power of the gospel and how the gospel is changing you from the inside out. Your confidence in your assurance of your salvation grows. There is great reward for being a deacon. And this is why it's ultimately so honorable to be a deacon. Because we are serving the deacon of all deacons. Right? Jesus is not just the king of kings. He's also the servant of servants. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. No one can beat him in his serving. Right? If you want to look, what, look at what serving looked like, look at the cross. 
That's how he served us. That's how he loved us. That's how he laid down. And that's true greatness in God's eyes. Listen to Matthew 20 verse 26. He says to the disciples that are arguing about who are the greatest, he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diakono. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, doulos. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So do you want to be great? You see, the great people in, in God's eyes are not the people that are in front and always doing the most upfront things, but the people that are doing the behind the scenes serving that nobody knows. The person that does the coffee and tea always, the person that opens up the church, the person that cleans the church, the person that is loving his wife and loving and respecting their husband and the person that is parenting faithfully, that nobody sees. Those are the kind of people that are great by God. Those people that are cutting off their hands and plucking out their eyes because they struggle with lust. Because it's not those who are pure in hands that will see God. Those who are pure in heart. God sees our hearts. God sees our thoughts. Those who forgive like God forgives. Those are the great people in God's eyes. And this is what will happen is as we install qualified deacons, not only will we be protecting the pillar and the buttress of the word, but we will also be the aroma of Christ. There would be an aroma of servant-heartedness within the church. And if you do not know him, if you don't know this Jesus who has laid down his life for many, come to him right now. He is a servant. He will not despise you for your sins. If you come with your sins, you can rest in his servant heart that loves to forgive sinners. He will serve you so well that you will make it to heaven. That's how good of a servant he is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant heart, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have showed us the model of true greatness, of what it means to be a true deacon. And Lord, even though... Um, the office of deacons might not be for all of us. Thank you that we all can strive to become deacons of hearts. That we can all strive to be servants like you are a servant, Lord. Lord, there where we have failed, there where we see our character not fully matured yet, or there where our theological understanding is limited, or there where our family lives are not exactly as you would like it to be, Father, we pray, Lord, that you will cause us to repent. Give us repentant and broken hearts for these things. May we not excuse our sins, Lord, and see it as trivial, as small, because the world does it, or because our marriages are better than other marriages, or because of this or the other, Lord. But may we fear you. May our hearts be broken over our sins, Lord. And as we humble ourselves before you, we know, Lord, you will exalt us. And you will carry us and you will heal us and you will forgive us and you will change us. Oh Lord, make us a church full of the aroma of Christ that delights in being the least, that delights in serving others as you have served us and loved us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.